the earnings are in and they're, well, they're earnings. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Kopenheffer, and right here next to me is David Hansen. I am. <laughs> you are. Still, still, after all of these, all these, all, years. All these months, yes. yeah, all these years. <laughs> David, I, I've, I've heard that The Wolf of Wall Street was nominated for Best Picture this year for the Oscars. Do you think it deserves to be in that uh, rarefied air? I'm going to be like a really big movie snob and be like, it was impressive cinematography, but the story was maybe not great. It was, it was impressive cinematography. So you though. would nominate it for best cinema. Is, that's a category, right? Sounds like yeah. it would be. Uh, however, Jonah Hill, the, the article that I was reading said that the fact that Jonah Hill was nominated for best supporting actor was a surprise. I don't think that's a surprise. No. I think he did an awesome job. Very impressive. And Leo big did a, Leo did a very big team. Yes. Leo did a good job, too, and he's nominated for best actor. So good for them. I'm not sure that the movie deserves to be best picture. Yeah, the, the, the premise was just to doesn't rub foolish investors the right way all the time. Doesn't smack of realism. It does not. Although it was. Yep. All right, headlines. First headline of the day. We're going to Reuters. The earnings are rolling in. Goldman Sachs profit hit by lower bond trading revenue. David, nothing really jumped out as super surprising here to me. I guess in a in a slower trading environment. Uh, a bank like Goldman, a financial company like Goldman that, that relies on trading, is going to get hit. It's not going to mm-hmm. look pretty. Uh, did anything shock you about the earnings? No, we were, surpri- we were not surprised by trading being down. We saw Jeffrey's report months ago. Their trading was down. That's kind of the, the signal that the rest of the, the industry will be down. And in the article, it points out that J.P. Morgan's fixed income trading was higher, an anomaly. But if you go to J.P. Morgan's earnings and look at the details, it was higher from last last year, fourth quarter. But if you look at the footnotes, it's because in that fourth quarter, the London Whale CIO credits portfolio, whatever you want to call it, was moved into fixed income trading. So those results were artificially lower, making it an easier hurdle. So it's not like this is a Goldman-specific thing. It was industry-wide. But they were still... J.P. Morgan's results were still fairly flat, I think, in in fixed income trading. Um, Looking ahead... It's uh, again. We, we we keep saying this, but fi- the fixed income trading, the the trading environment in general, it's a cyclical thing. Looking ahead, what I think is interesting is into 2014. Uh, I think there's the potential to ma- well, maybe we finally see that fixed income trading pick up. Um, we're certainly going to see some change out of the Federal Reserve. We're we're approaching the 6.5 percent unemployment rate that the mm-hmm. Fed is watching in terms of its uh, its bond buying program and its central interest rate. Um, we're, we've already seen some of the taper program co- come into effect. Uh, mer- we can see mergers and acquisitions pick up as the economy continues to pick up. We can also see the IPO market continue to pick mm-hmm. up. I was reading uh, an article in the New York Times about the potential for the Alibaba IPO, which could be massive. Really big. Which not could be, will be mm-hmm. massive. And there's a very good chance that Goldman will be a part of that, if not one of the lead book runners. So um, in terms of the look ahead for Goldman, there could be better better horizons. Indeed, and just kind of rounding out the full year of 2013, full year 2013, ROE was 11%. Not bad, considering there were some headwinds in the environment there. They were able to grow tangible book value 7% for the year, despite Berkshire exercising those warrants, which came in and actually hurt uh, existing shareholders, or diluted them a little bit. So still grew tangible book 7%, ROE. tangible book per share? Per share, correct. They did, they did reduce the share count uh, with some buybacks there. So overall, 
not an outstanding year, but going forward with the valuation and these results and the history of the firm, I'm still confident in the firm. Okay, second headline. Second headline, more earnings. It's an earnings kind of day. This one's very blunt from DealBook. <laughs> Citigroup earnings disappoint. Now, you are a Citigroup shareholder. You've been on the bandwagon the last couple of months, really coming along with the strategy at, at Citigroup. Were you disappointed? Not, not, in these, not in these earnings. I, one quarter isn't going to change my outlook for Citigroup. It's really more a look ahead to the next five years and what can happen over that time frame. I think you pointed this out to me uh, that in the article, it sort of said that this is a critical time for Michael Corbat. So Citi's disappointing at a critical time for Michael Corbat. I don't think it's a critical time. Just trying to I stir ho- the pot, I guess. Right. Deal I hope that anybody in a position to evaluate, to, to, to legitimately evaluate Corbett is not thinking that this is a critical time. It's a time. This is a time. <laughs> it is time. It, it is, it's a time. But it's not a critical time. Corbett's been the CEO for, for 15 ba- months. Yeah, barely a year. Um, I'm looking ahead to five years when he can really implement the strategic vision of sort of consolidating the bank down to the the key urban markets around the world and becoming the premier global bank or cementing its place as the premier global bank. Um, I was thinking about what are the kind of things we want to see from Citigroup. We want to see expenses coming down. We want to see city holdings being reduced. We're seeing both of those. City holdings assets were down 25% year over year. We want to see them focusing the international presence. They've continued to do that. And they, we want to see them use the deferred tax assets. I don't think we've talked too much about that on the show. It's a little should, boring. I, I know. We, <laughs> should, we should probably visit that on yeah. its own at some point. But basically, this is a, a, a big chunk of assets on Citi's balance sheet that they need to use because they're not earning returns against it. They used $2.4 billion worth of those deferred tax assets this year. That's a good thing. I'll leave it at that for now. We'll revisit that again. In another the, the one thing I'll say about Citigroup that, that kind of disappointed me, if we we're going to point to one thing, not be totally optimistic. Well, not totally, but their con- the consumer banking segment continued to look not great uh, across the regions there. Revenue in North America, consumer banking down, EMEA down, Asia down. Latin America was the only segment that was up, but only 6%. So not great numbers. Uh, you feel look across just customer accounts mm-hmm. in the consumer segment. That was down about 600,000 accounts less uh, than, than last year. So, so maybe, how- maybe some commentary. I'd like to hear some commentary in terms of what are they seeing in the consumer banking segment. How much is that colored by the fact that there was a bunch of headlines that you're seeing out there today saying that the results are disappointing? How much does that differ from what we've seen at the other big banks? Good, good point. Uh, I, I wasn't going. I wasn't going searching. I, 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 let me let me say. I was going searching to try to find what, what, what was wasn't was great. Maybe okay, that's fair. I, I don't know if that's why. I mean, I don't really care that the stock's down a couple percentage points. I don't know if that's the reason why. But if there's a part of the business that I'd like to hear more about in terms of why isn't it growing, it's that. So me, well, meanwhile, just just to counter you because I've got to counter you. You do. Uh, deposits were up four uh, percent, and we were talking about this before the show. When you think about people, tend to think about the asset side of the business a lot more in non-financial businesses. In a financial business, in a bank in particular, a lot of the value comes from the liability from that deposit franchise side of the business. Uh, Anybody can go out and give loans. That's the easiest business in the world. The easiest business in the world is giving people money. Mm -hmm. Uh, The difficult business is getting people to give you money essentially for free and let you hold it and do things with it to earn money while you're holding it. So, So I'm more encouraged by... The um, that expansion in the deposits. All right, fair. 
Third headline. But you you bring up a you bring up a decent point. Those those numbers didn't look, <laughs> those numbers didn't look fantastic. Uh, third headline. This is from the Post Gazette. PNC reports record setting profits. David, you are a big big fan of PNC. Um, I'm not going to say that I'm not a fan as well. My take overall was that this looked pretty similar to me from what we've been hearing elsewhere. Cost cutting going on and lower loan provisions. Uh, what is it that jumped out at you about PNC? What drove the record setting? <laughs> the, those, those were certainly part of it, but also consumer service fees. We saw PNC come out and really try to make their fee model transparent to their customers, saying, we're not going to do free checking anymore. You can avoid it by meeting these requirements, but if you don't, you're going to pay a fee. And we saw consumer service fees up 11%. I think as long as you're transparent with your fees, that's a good thing. Uh, we hear a lot of, from Bill Demchak about embracing technology for the consumer platform. 30% of deposits were done mobile or ATM. That's mm-hmm. up from only 18% last year. Mm-hmm. That's a trend that I'm 30% pretty... 30% of new deposits. No, that... of deposit transactions. So okay, people gotcha. depositing a check, depositing cash, 30% were done, was done remotely, only 18% last year. I think that will continue. They closed branches, increased checking accounts, unlike Citigroup, 3% year over year. Um, <laughs> And they got a nice boost from BlackRock, which also reported earnings. Uh, we won't get into their earnings today, but got a nice boost from, from BlackRock as well, since that they have that big stake there. What is the largest? What is the largest denomination check that you would feel comfortable depositing through your mobile device? Ooh. Where do you draw that line? If I if I wrote you a check for fifty thousand dollars, would you feel okay? No, no. I would probably go. You'd <laughs> go into yeah. the bank. Would... How about how about anything with four digits? Yeah, I'd probably do anything above ten thousand. I wouldn't do it. You take that into the take that into, take that to the bank. Yes, take sir. it to the bank. Uh, one other quick question for you: the, the consumer service fees. Does that worry you at all? I, I agree with you that if they're transparent about it, that's a good thing. However, what's the potential that this is the fees going up because they just kind of instituted this, and now consu- the, the customers there will say, "Ooh." I actually don't really like paying this. I'm going to go somewhere else. <laughs> it's possible, but like I said, checking accounts up 3% year over year. So if that number starts to go down drastically, then maybe there's some questions. But until then, it's all good. Okay. Well, we're going to move from the earnings headlines to an earnings in focus. We're going to take a closer look at Bank of America's earnings. Bank of America reported yesterday. We had our all questions episode yesterday. I obviously encourage anybody to go back and listen to that. We've mm-hmm. got uh, the questions coming in. We answered those yesterday. Bank of America. One of the things. Uh, let, let me start out. Uh, I'll start out with this. One of the things I think that's that's holding back the return on equity, at least for the banks, as compared to pre-crisis levels, is capital levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, the banks, as they are looking to get more safe, meet regulatory requirements, they're bulking up their capital levels. I'm not going to get into all the Basel and the Tier One and everything like that. The one that I like to look at, and, and you can flip this either way you want when you're looking at it. So it's Either assets over shareholders' equity, you get kind of a leverage ratio, a, a leverage number there, right. or you can flip it the other way and get a, uh, a shareholder equity as a percent of assets. Bank of America was at 12.7, 12.7 times assets mm-hmm. um, in 2005, down to nine today. Wow. So we can look at that two ways. Uh, one is that the bank has made its balance sheet much more secure, much safer. Uh, on the other hand, we can look at it that it's not leveraging its assets quite as much. So that's going to be a challenge. That's going to be a, a headwind to return on equity. Mm-hmm. First thing that stood out to me, want me to go? Go for it. It's the expenses. It, I've said that's the story for a while. They have new BAC, the, pro, the cost-cutting program, in place. 2013 total expenses, $69 billion. 
15 billion of that was related to LAS mm-hmm. and litigation. 15 billion. So without that, it would be down to 54 billion dollars. If you think of kind of just their core business, 54 billion. That used to be in 2011, 62 billion. So they've taken out 8 billion of core expenses there. And if they can get that 15 billion that's related to litigation and LAS, that drops to the bottom line. I mean, that's, that is going to be the main driver here. It's not going to be top line growth. They're not going to see 10% top line growth at Bank of America. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But if they can get those expenses out, that is a huge thing for shareholders. I was looking at earlier today some of the, the, the differences between where the banks were, the, the condition of the banks, I'll say, between 2005 and 2000, uh, 2013, this, this past year. And what was interesting was for Bank of America, the, the amount, the, 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 to, to the extent to which they're using, if I can get this out, the extent to which they're using their assets to generate net interest income and non-interest income. It's been relatively stable between 2005 and 2013. So the question is, why isn't Bank of America producing the profits that it has been between those two periods. And the big reason is, is that expenses have gone way up. As, way as, up. Way <laughs> up. And so when you think about what Brian Moynihan has been doing, he's been right on point that his focus has been on reducing expenses. So mm-hmm. I'm right there with you. Uh, my, question, my question now is, is, obviously, you continue to reduce the expenses. There's, there's still plenty of room to be made up there. You continue to work off the legal liabilities. But what's next? And, and in particular with that, what's next in terms of defining what this business is, defining what it is for customers, and maybe shaking off some of this reputational problem? Time will be, just plain old time, will be somewhat of a remedy for that, but I think the bank does have to be a little bit more proactive about heading off the, the reputational damage that's been done since 2008. I agree. Uh, that's important. It's cleaning up the stuff, getting the expenses out of the system. Okay, now you have a clean balance sheet, let's say, and you're making normalized earnings, Mm -hmm. do you have what it takes to keep it that way and keep people coming back to do business with you? It it seems like they're on the right path, but Mm -hmm. like you said, it remains to be seen whether they do it over a long period of time. Anything else that that you want to highlight about the earnings report? Um, No. Sounds good. What do you think about what's... uh, one of the other things that I was noticing was Merrill. Uh, mm-hmm. Merrill continues to be a good contributor to Bank of America. Uh, countrywide, I don't, I don't think that there's any, I, I don't think there's any, basically any possibility that Countrywide's ever going to be looked back on as this was, was reasonable for them to acquire it. Merrill, on the other hand, there's a pretty big hurdle in terms of the, the settlements that they've had to do for Merrill, in terms of the losses that they got right off the bat, and in terms of the price they paid. However, the, the Merrill brokerage business, that's both the Merrill Edge, which is kind of a retail-oriented business, as well as the institutional business, that's been a really good contributor, a steady, solid yeah. contributor. And then the investment banking franchise uh, ha- has been really solid as well. So I'm getting more and more bullish on Merrill as part of Bank of America. Right. I don't think there's a question that it's not going to be a, a profitable acquisition, mm-hmm. despite all those things. But it's just a question of it could have been so much more profitable, because if you... If you say maybe they paid $0.75 cents on the dollar for Merrill, mm-hmm. maybe if they waited two days, they could have got it for $0.25 cents on the dollar. <laughs> then it would look very profitable. So I don't think there's a question that it's a good, stable business. It's just a question of, gosh, I wish they paid a little bit less for it. All right, let's head over to the mailbag. We've got an email address. That email address is WTMI at fool.com. We love to get emails, so go ahead and send us an email. Uh, our question for the day comes from Darren. 
Darren writes, I have been hearing about peer-to-peer lending at some investing sites and podcasts. IRAs are available to invest in loans at sites like Prosper and Lending Club. What are your thoughts on peer-to-peer lending as an investment? Would this be a suitable replacement for part of the bond allocation in a portfolio? Do you think peer-to-peer lending will become disruptive to banks or credit card companies? I, I, let, me, let me start off with this comment. My first comment will be what I said before, is that the easiest business in the world is giving people money. And, and you, can, you can do as much of that as you want if you give, give people money at a good price. So to that extent... I'm not necessarily bullish on, in particular, peer-to-peer lending disrupting banks mm-hmm. because banks are good at the harder part of the business, which is getting people to give them money at right. low cost. Um, peer-to-peer lending is more about you giving people money, and that's, that's relatively easy. Right, and looking at the two ones that he mentioned, Prosper and Lending Club, these aren't just no-namers. Uh, John Mack yeah, from, from Morgan Stanley is now on the board of Lending Club. Google invested in Lending Club, so these are no joke of an organization, but in terms of making this an allocation to your bond portfolio, maybe, but you need to realize these are pretty risky loans here. You need to, they need to be thought of as almost junk bonds, maybe even <laughs> riskier than junk bonds in my opinion. You think so? Um, I do think so. Okay. Uh, I mean, this is people that, a lot of people that, that come and are asking for money are borrowing at these rates to go then pay off credit card loans at higher rates. So these aren't the most credit-worthy customers. Sometimes they are, but a lot of the times they are not. I think if you're interested in it, you need to spread your money across a wide net. I wouldn't go through and be like, oh, that sounds like a cool idea. Idea, I'll put $10,000 behind this one guy. Mm-hmm. I would spread it across multiple, multiple loans if, you, if this is something you're interested in. I think it can be successful. People have been successful. Um, we are seeing bigger players move into the space, which will have more competition for maybe the best loans, some specialized lenders, some hedge funds are moving in. So as more people come into the space, it will be harder to make as attractive returns, I think. I think what's interesting is to think about to what extent would you make a big loan to a friend or family member and how comfortable would you be with that and how much would you think that that would be a replacement for bonds in a portfolio? Um, if you're comfortable with that and you like that idea, maybe move on to the to the Prosper or Lending Club. But that's something that, that I'd, I'd say more test out and play around with as opposed to say, yeah, this is, this is just as good as having a diversified bond index mm-hmm. in, my, in my portfolio. It's definitely not the same as that. It's a much more, if you're looking at sort of the risk scale of your fixed income, right. uh, that's way up. That's way up. And, and one thing I'm, I'm not sure, I haven't looked into this, is I don't know the fees involved in terms of going through lending clubs. So like I, I just said, maybe spread it across 20 different loans. If there are large fees involved, something to be aware of if you're doing a lot of these. I'm not sure what the fee structure is or, or kind of how that works, but something to look into if you're interested. It's just generally going to be more work. So, so just the same as if you get an S&P 500 index fund and you're paying low cost on that versus if you're investing in individual equities, uh, that's a lot more work to pick out the individual equities you're going to invest in. Just like if, and, and again, this it's still not the same, but uh, investing in a low-cost bond index fund versus trying to pick out good individual customer risks on a peer-to-peer lending site, that's going to be a lot more work, and you have to make sure that you do that work and know what the costs are so that you can kind of project what you're actually going to see as a return there. Indeed. All right, game for, the, for today. we got a little fool in the blank. I'm going to present... Uh, a couple scenarios, a few scenarios. We fool in the blank. We do. Fill it in. Uh, let's start with the first one. We've got Citigroup's results made me blank 
about the bank's turnaround? Decently confident. <laughs> it, I mean, turnaround. Turnaround being defined as cleaning up City Holdings, which was just the mess, bad loans on their books. Citigroup, we've talked about this before, they haven't been hit as hard with the legal costs. It's not that part of their business that was so bad. They were kind of more of a, I don't want to call them a victim, but they were the ones holding a lot of these bad mortgages. Victim, they were a victim. You can call them that. So, so they, have, they have reduced that. I think they reduced City Holdings by another 25% this quarter. So I'm pretty confident they're getting it done. What do you say? I would say City's results made me feel exactly the same about the prospects, <laughs> about the bank's turnaround. This, this one quarter didn't really change the way I'm looking, at the, I'm looking at the story. I'm looking at the future for Citigroup. All right. Let's go on to the second one. You want to read it? Looking back at 2013, I now think Brian Moynihan is a blank CEO. <laughs> there are a lot of things you can put in there. What do you think? I'm going with perfectly capable. Brian Moynihan is a perfectly capable CEO. I think he's got a laser focus on exactly the right thing. I'll tell you one thing that I wouldn't put into that blank is a charismatic CEO. Uh, another thing that I wouldn't put into that blank is a... Um, Let's flip it around. Is a CEO that I like listening to on conference calls. Uh, he is he is stultifyingly boring, um, and I say that with all due respect, all love to to Captain Moynihan there. But uh, I think he is a very capable CEO. I think he's looking at the right things at Bank of America. I, I'm with you. I said he was uninspiring, but hard nosed. <laughs> I don't know, wouldn't go with that. That's what I feel like when I'm listening uh, on the conference un- call. <laughs> uninspiring. I think rumors are that. Other executives, his nickname is The Mumbler. So I don't think many people see him as a very charismatic speaker. But hard-nosed, I mean, we talk about expenses. They're getting it done. That's not an exciting thing to do. But he has been pounding the table on expenses. That's what he has everyone at the company thinking about. For better or worse, you could argue that maybe that's not the best thing to focus on all the time. Mm -hmm. But for now, it has been. They've gotten it done, so he's hard-nosed. There you go. All right, final final scenario here. After fourth quarter earnings, my pick of the four big banks is is unchanged. I'm sorry, um, J.P. Morgan still is J. still, is still the pick. I still think the valuation, the performance, makes it the best pick of the group. We had a, a listener. I'll kind of jump in a little bit. That says, "Why does David still like J.P. Morgan? I don't get it." And they said, "I'm up fifty percent. Should I sell?" I still think the valuation looks attractive for what you're paying for today. The results look a little muddy. The last couple of years, I mentioned the London Whale earlier. 2012 looks a little muddy. This year looks muddy with the litigation expenses. If we can get to a year that doesn't have anything like that, I think people will realize how much this business is really making. Citigroup's been climbing in my rankings. Is that my pick of the litter? I think it is. All right. Citigroup, number one. All right, let's finish off in the Twitter sphere. David, what's our first tweet? First tweet is from Roger Nayak. He says, Emreet stare down activist threats. How hard is it to run a mortgage REIT? I could run one in my basement. And that was a quote from Phil Goldstein of Bulldog Investors. So Bulldog took a stake in Javelin saying, you guys need to buy back your stock. It is so cheap. You are wasting everyone's money by not buying it back. They made a big deal about it uh, back in, in the end of 2013. They finally did. The stock went up. Other, more, other mortgage REITs, AGNC, American Capital Agency, they've been buying back some shares. Annually, not as much. Um, is that something you think mortgage REITs should do with most of them trading at big discounts to book? I, I know we think about that, and it sounds like almost a no-brainer. 
What would be the downside of them buying back their shares at, at this big of a discount? I don't. I don't know that there necessarily is. I, you know, it's a it's a business of capital allocation. It's a fund, mm-hmm. and what you want to do is is sort of. Uh, Take advantage of when your when your stock is at a at a premium mm-hmm. and, and they, they sell shares because they have to they have to give out most of what they earn in terms of in, in, in the uh, way of dividends so they're not keeping a lot of cash uh, in the business mm-hmm. so when when the when the stock is high go ahead and take advantage of that uh, get a bunch of cash into the business and then when the stock's at a at a discount like this I do think it makes sense to do un- unless they see some other opportunity um, and. and American Capital Agency and Annaly are, are good examples of they just don't have a lot of flexibility. Right. They're focused on agency-backed, mortgage-backed securities. So if there are opportunities that are better than buying back the stock at this sort of discount, go for it. Otherwise, it makes sense to do it. I think one of the reasons that they may not have is if they don't want to lever up and borrow more to do that, they may have to sell securities. We saw the securities plummet in value the last couple of quarters. They Maybe don't want to sell them at those values, sell them at a loss, and realize those losses. So maybe that's what's holding up some of these firms from going back. In. I'll tell you another reason that they might not is that the the payments that go to the management companies are based on a percentage of what it's either shareholder equity or or assets. Either way, if you start buying back stock, those are going down unless you unless you lever up a whole bunch. Um, is it shareholder equity? I think, I think it shareholder is equity. shareholder equity. So if you start buying back stock, that shareholder equity goes down. Guess what? Management company is getting paid less. Not going to say that that's the case at all these companies, but hey, follow the money sometimes. All right. Final tweet. Final tweet. We've got... Do we have a final tweet? You do have a final tweet, right? We do. There we go. WSJ Life and Style. That's at WSJ Life. The question is, the best airport food before boarding, in which terminal can you find bison tartare? Do you have first, any airport first, recommendations? First question is, are you eating bison tartare before you're getting on a plane? I've never had tartare of any sort. You really you haven't? Not at all? No. Uh, you asked, what's my favorite food before getting... I really dig when there's a pot bellies at, mm. at, a, um, at an airport. I find that they're usually the most efficient pot bellies. I think it's Midway. It's one of the Chicago airports that I fly through a lot, and they have a pot bellies in the airport. So well run. So awesome. There's actually one at Dulles, too. I don't like and flying DC, out of Dulles. And, and Reagan. Is there? There is. I don't think I've been to that one. Well, how about you? What's your go-to? I just find, like, the Japanese place where they're giving out free samples, and I just walk back and forth <laughs> ten times. That's my lunch. <laughs> don't have to pay for anything. Well, I guess that's, that's going to be the question for, for today for, for our uh, WTMIers. What is your favorite airport food? Give us the airport. Give us the restaurant. We will go there. Oh. We'll do a show from that restaurant. Whoa. I'm not going to promise that, but maybe. I was going to say that's a big promise. We'll have to run it up the food chain and <laughs> see if we can get funding for that, but maybe. All right, well, that's the show for today. You can find us on Twitter. We're at TMF Financials. You can also find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is Motley Fool Financial Services. I'm Matt Copenheffer here for David Hansen. We'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.